Our topic for this evening is the career of Alexander Yanai, one of the evil Hasmonean monarchs, at least according to the rabbinic tradition, and maybe even according to Josephus as well. Um, Alexander Yanai is the third son of John Hyrcanus. He is born roughly around the year 127 or 126 BCE, and his father dies when he's about 23 years old, 23 years old in the year 104, as the third son of the prior high priest and king, or pseudo-king, he's not in line for the throne. Son number one, the Bechor, Judah Aristobulus, is going to take over. Last week we learned about how he had a one-year disastrous reign, and that he dies of ill health, and that along with his own death, he caused the death of his brother Antigonus, who was son number two, from the first wife of, uh, of John Hyrcanus. So, Yanai is the first son of the second wife, but the third son overall, and he's in line to grab the reins of the country. He was in jail, and he was extracted from jail by Salome Alexandra, who had been the wife of, Aristob- of uh, uh, Aristobulus, and now is the opportunity for a marriage between the two of them. A, bro- a, a brother-in-law marrying his sister-in-law. We normally call that Yibum. Aristobulus had no children because he was in, it was in ill health. He couldn't reproduce. And so Salome Alexandra had no children at that point in time. Yana is available. Time to get married. Yibum. But there's a problem. What's the law about a Kohen... Marrying someone who was previously married. Okay, so a regular Kohen is not allowed to marry A normal Kohen cannot marry a Gurusha, a divorcee, or a Zona, which is some sort of a harlot category, or a Halala, a defiled Kohen. But basically, the main rule is she, a Kohen cannot marry a divorcee. Can a Kohen marry a widow? Answer is, yes. yes. But the Kohen Gadol, it says about the Kohen Gadol, Virgin bride from among his people he must take. So a Kohen Gadol cannot marry an Almana. If Alexander Yanai is on the verge of taking over the reins of the country as both the political leader and as the ecclesiastical leader, the high priest, is he allowed to perform Yibum with his deceased brother's former wife? Well... If you're a Sadducee, the answer would be definitely no. They take a plain reading of the Bible, no exceptions. If you're a Pharisee, you could argue that the law of Yibum trumps the law of the high priesthood and that the marriage is lawful. However, in the rabbinic halacha, there's a gezerah, there's a, a, a lower level ruling, a rabbinic ruling against this that you should not have the Kohen Gadol perform the ceremony of Yibum, but rather there should be some kind of a chalitza by another brother. Well, all that said, Yana is not about to let an opportunity slip out of his hands. He marries Salome Alexandra and takes the reins of the country. His first act is to go to war, because that's the, uh, the gist of his career, going to war, expanding the borders of the Hasmonean state, The borders have been growing. Ever since the days of Jonathan, uh, 50 years earlier, and through the days of Simon and John Harkonnes, the 
old Judean state, which was basically just Jerusalem and the immediate surroundings, was expanded southward towards Idumea, northward gobbling up portions of the Sumerian highlands, westward taking some of the Philistine cities and some of the Phoenician cities along the coast, and even to the east, uh, getting close to the Jordan River and then maybe even going beyond the Jordan River into the Transjordanian regions. Well, that expansion is all well and good, but Yanai wants more. So, you know, Ohev Kesef Lo Yisba Kesef, if you love money, you'll never have enough money. If you love land, you'll never have enough land. Colonialist expansion, that was his approach. So what does he do? Where does he attack? Yes, last week you also mentioned this expansion. Uh-huh. But if you don't have people to populate it, ah. it makes it... Okay, so, w- so what do you do to populate with your own kind of people? Well, there are three possibilities. One is, it, one is that there already is an existing Jewish population in other parts of Eretz Yisrael that were not previously under the, the Judean state. We know that to be a fact. Not necessarily enough to be the demographic majority, but there are Jews all over Eretz Yisrael, even in regions that had not been previously under Jewish rule. So you have some core to work with who are going to be loyal because they're religiously your kinsmen, and ethnically your kinsmen. Second possibility is to drive out the local inhabitants, make it uh, relatively uh, desolate so that new settlers can come on in who are of your, uh, your own persuasion. And the third possibility is don't remove anybody from the, from the territory, just make them like you. Force them to circumcise and become Judaized. Of the three options, so the first one is the safest, just take advantage of the existing Jewish population. Um, De, uh, you know, removing existing inhabitants, you know, that's morally a little bit troubling, but wasn't back then. Let's, let's be honest. It might, might trouble us today, but it didn't back then. Okay. Uh, and also notions of uh, divine promise. These things were taken seriously back in those years. Whereas the, th- the third option is the most problematic. Because how do you know that just because someone committed, uh, uh, cir- circumcised themselves or made some uh, token promise of being Jewish that they have any loyalty whatsoever. You don't really know that. All you know is they did a symbolic act. Didn't okay. John Herkinus do that to Idumians? So the John Herkinus did that to the Idumians, and it, and it was not a good idea. In the end, it led to the Herodian dynasty and bad news for the Jews. Okay, so the first place to attack is the polis at Ptolemaeus, or Akko, uh, in northern Israel. And lest we think that Yanai is always successful and he's this glorious warrior king, he loses. His first battle, he lost. And the reason why he lost was because Ptolemy the Ninth, who, if his, by the way, if his name is Ptolemy, where does he come from? Egypt. Okay, so he comes from Egypt and was on several occasions the king of Egypt. Several occasions. But that also means that he was deposed several times, if he's occasionally the king of Egypt. His mother, Cleopatra, didn't like him. And... This was a weird family where brothers married sisters and sons killed their mothers and all sorts of weird stuff happened in terms of uh, sexual unions and, and outright murder. Right, so Cleopatra kicked out Ptolemy IX from Egypt and he went to become the king of Cyprus. And as king of Cyprus, Cyprus is not that far away from Akko. Right, northern Israel, Cyprus, not too far away. He comes to save the day for the Hellenistic polis and attacks the army of Yanai. Yanai turns around and kind of you know, flees, does realize he's not going to capture Akko. But Ptolemy goes further, and he attacks Tsipori, 
Sepphoris and Sichnin, Shichnin. There he takes many, many Jewish prisoners. According to Josephus, it's as many as 10,000 prisoners, but that's an exaggeration. There's no way it's that many. But a horrible thing ensued. People were hacked to death, and their remains were boiled in cauldrons so as to give the impression that Talmi and his goons were uh, cannibals. We don't find much of this in in Jewish history, uh, any reference to cannibalism. And there was no cannibalism here, but there was the threat of cannibalism, which is enough to scare people out of their minds. Um, So, Yanai is on the run, and the people are are petrified. What do they do? Uh, They pray for some kind of salvation. And there is salvation forthcoming. Because Cleopatra doesn't want her exiled son to become too powerful in the Middle East, so she intervenes and pre- and prevents the, um, uh, the, the the Cypriot king from pressing his advantage too much. A peace treaty is concluded, which eliminates uh, Ptolemy from the scene. He goes back to Cyprus, and Cleopatra then, having saved. Yanai's uh, army from utter destruction would like to annex Judea to the country of Egypt, which, by the way, only a hundred years earlier was part of Egypt. Remember, from the Alexandrian conquest, basically after Alexander died until the year 198 BCE, Israel was under Egyptian control. So we're a hundred years later, roughly in the year 90, uh, 99, 100 around then. It's not such a far-fetched thing for Egypt to reoccupy Judea or to annex it politically. But the Jewish generals in the Egyptian army prevented this from happening. Interesting story. Uh, Ananias and Hilkiah, or Hanania and Hilkiahu, by their Jewish names, were some of the leading generals in the Egyptian army, and they impressed upon Cleopatra that it would be a bad idea for Egypt, the Egyptian state to try to gobble up uh, the independent Hasmonean kingdom. Why would this have been a bad idea? Because the Jews of Egypt looked favorably upon Jewish independence in the ancient homeland. And the Jews of Egypt were some of the major political backers of Cleopatra. In the, uh, the, fi- the fighting that took place in the pre- preceding years over who would have the, the Ptolemaic throne, who supported Cleopatra, the, the, basically the rich Jews. And the other uh, contenders to the throne had other bases of support from among the native Egyptian population and the Hellenistic uh, population. So, don't annex Judea. It's bad for for business. This is a a nice example of a diaspora Jew using political influence to um, accomplish sort of a Zionistic end, that uh, Jews should retain sovereignty in their own land with the help of... Chutzla uh, Aretz people, you know, doing the right thing and speaking to the right people. Okay. Uh, Alexander could have easily lost his throne early on in his career because of his ineptitude and his military defeats, uh, but save for the e- Egyptian support that he got. Now, the, the, the land of Israel suffered terribly as a result of these barely successful wars of conquest from 103 to 98. A couple of Philistine cities were gained. Uh, along the coastline, they were added to the, the, the Jewish territory, but at tremendous cost, a lo- tremendous loss of life and uh, loss of property. And also, when you fight wars continuously, it's not good for morale. Uh, people don't want to be in a permanent state of war, in a permanent army. They'd like to go home to their fig tree in their olive grove every now and then. Um, so, he has alienated a significant element of the population. 
Yana is forced to align himself with the Sadducees, who as a class were interested in national aggrandizement. This is a key point because we tend to, if we only read rabbinic literature, view things through an entirely religious prism, as though the Chashmonaim were the good guys when they were on the side of the Pharisees, but all of a sudden they, they had an, uh, an epiphany of Apicorsus and became Tzedukim, and now all of a sudden are damned to hell for eternity. That's not what happened. There's uh, very little religious um, uh, motivation in their, uh, in their uh, factional decisions. If they were aligned with the Pharisees previously, it's because the Pharisees had popular support, and you want to supply troops for the army. Once you lose the Pharisees because you're going on too many expeditions too many times and you're losing, and maybe you're not so frum, so the Sadducees are a, a reasonable choice uh, to pick as a new base of support because the Sadducees, as wealthy aristocrats, were interested in expanding the borders of the country and profiteering. And they weren't so religious. So you could get away with uh, being less than pious. So they could... They flip-flopped, it said. Yes. Did we say that John Harkness was sadducized at the end? Late in his career, yes. Okay, and Alexander Yanai would have gotten a definite thumbs down if he went and married uh, Salome. Right. By the Sadducees, yeah. and now he's in bed with them. Correct, and he will stay with them till basically his dying days, when, according to legend, we'll, we'll discuss how he instructs his wife, who will take over for him, uh, to align herself with the Pharisees. So there's a lot of flip-flopping going on. Um, yes, Salome will, be, will, will, will bring the Pharisees into the government, and the height of their political power is during the nine years of her reign, between 76 and 67 B.C. Okay. Alexander goes on several wars of conquest, especially in Transjordan. But the most important uh, victory that he had was in the year 96 at Gaza. Gaza is, is a terrible place, always has been. And it had a long history of independence as not being part of uh, the Judean state, the Macedonian state. It was its own enclave, an independent polis which you have every now and then along the Mediterranean coast, a city-state that exists on its own. But uh, yeah, Alexander Yanai was interested in conquering it because by doing so, he controlled the trade routes through the Mediterranean Sea uh, that had been previously dominated by the Nabataeans, the Arabs. So the, la- the, the land route from Arabia and points east and south across southern Israel to the coast ends at Gaza, and the port is located at Gaza, and the ships go off and sail to Europe. If you control Gaza, you can impose you know, excise taxes, customs, on a, a whole host of uh, caravans coming through and ships going out. You make a lot of money, and you need money to fund wars. So the, the, the occupation, the conquest of Gaza is a big deal. But as a result of taking Gaza, the Nabataean king, Obitus, he is annoyed, and he wants to lash out at the Jews. So he picks a soft target in the Golan Heights, and he attacks the, uh, the Transjordanian Golan uh, region of the Judean state, and Yanai has to go to war against the Nabataeans to uh, remedy this affront to his, uh, his borders. And again, he goes and loses. So Yanai doesn't always win, sometimes he loses. And he almost died in an ambush in the year 90, when the leader, who is not very popular goes to war and loses for the second time and almost dies, 
That is an opportune moment for internal rivals and dissenters to do what? To try and take over, to rebel and at least attempt uh, to to, to grab uh, control of the state. So, the relationship between the Hellenistic tyrannical monarchy of of the Hasmoneans and the pious Pharisees had been in decline since the days of John Hyrcanus, Alexander's Yanai's father. Rabbinic literature and Josephus tell us further stories about a deteriorating relationship between the religious Jews and Alexander Yanai. The most famous of the stories is the Esrog story. So let's take a look at what it says in in the uh, the literature of Chazal and compare that with Josephus. In the Mishnah, Mishnah and Sukkah, it says the following. And to the person who's pouring the, the water libation on the holiday of Sukkot, Omrimlo, we tell him, or rather the temple authorities tell him, lift up your hands. For one time, a person poured the water on his feet. And the entire congregation pelted that person with their esrogim. So it's the holiday of Sukkot, everyone has their Dalad Minim, and uh, you know, an Esrog is like a baseball, you can really hurt someone with, it, someone with it, and this person who's up on the altar is doing something religiously incorrect, so they attacked him. And ever since then, the Halakha requires that the temple authorities give instructions that the person do it correctly. Now there's a lot to discuss in this one Mishnah, it's a one-line Mishnah, but there's a lot here. First of all, it doesn't say who that person was. There's no name. And if we look in the, in the Gemara, Sukkah 48b, in the Bavli, it says, Tanurabanan, the rabbis learned in Abraisa, There was an incident involving a certain Sadducee who poured the water on his feet, and everyone pelted him with this rogim. Again, there's no name. It's a Sadducee, so we're led to believe this is a sectarian conflict over some religious issue, but it doesn't say who. Josephus tells us that it was Alexander Yanai, and it's followed by a massacre of 6,000 Pharisees on the temple grounds. A bloodbath. Horrible. Horrible. Okay, but what is the nature of this debate? So if you assume, like the commentators on the Gemara do, based upon a, a plain reading of the Gemara, that it was a religious uh, machloket, well, why do you have a religious machloket on matter of Nisu Chamaim? Very simply, Nisu Chamaim doesn't appear in the Torah. Where is there a supposed hint of Nisu Chamaim in the Torah? So you have in Parshat Pinchas, in the Maftir readings for the Sukkot holiday, the, re- the repetitive uh, nature of the Musaf, that every day it was the same offering, except what? How did it change every day? One less bull. One less bull. You start with 13 bulls, and you go down to 7 bulls. Total of 70 for the, for the week-long period. But otherwise, the sacrifice is all the same. And the wording of the Torah is basically the same, with the exception of three extraneous letters. Mem, Yud, Mem. Day 2, Day 6, and Day 7, there's, there's Misparam, Mishpatah, Kamisparam. There are th- uh, Mishpatam. There, there are three extra letters. Mem Yud Mem equals Mayim, water. On the basis of those extraneous letters, you have some uh, remez, a hint, an asmachta, uh, scriptural support for the notion of water libation. Okay. The other theory is Hasech. Uh, 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 um, how does it say? Uh, 
Hasech Nasech. Yeah, Hasech Nasech. So it's, there, there's two t- types of pouring. One type is the, the wine libation, which was standard, and the other is the water libation, which was atypical and done only on Sukkot. According to the, the, the rabbinic tradition, of what halachic standing is the Nisuchamayim? Is it Torah law, rabbinic law, somewhere in between? What is it? So it's a machlokis in the Gemara. One opinion says it's a halacha l'moshe misinai, which means Lord of Moses on Mount Sinai, a very ancient law. Another opinion says it's a minhag nevi'im, which means it's a custom of the prophets. Another says it's a yesod nevi'im. It was a matter uh, uh, established as an authoritative rule, not just a custom, but by the prophets. So according to the rabbinic literature, which is the successor to the Pharisees, Nisu Chamaim is a very old law, whether required by God on high or by the, the prophets. Either way, it's old. It's been around a long time and has great legitimacy. But if you are a Sadducee and you deny the legitimacy of the Halachalam Hashem Sinai, the notion of the oral law, or for that matter, the ability of the prophets to institute things that are not in the five books, then you would reject this practice as being Ill- illegitimate and if it's uh, not required, you shouldn't do it. Because in the temple, can we make up our own minhagim and like do nice cute things because they're cute? No. You do what's required and you, and you refrain from doing anything else. So that's the way conventionally the, the students of the Talmud understand this, this fight. The Sadducees reject Nisuchamayim, therefore they didn't want to do it. The guy was pressured into doing it, so he did it wrong. He put it on his feet to make a disgrace out of the whole thing. But that might not be the whole story. If this really was Yanai, then he doesn't care about the nuances of the law. And he's not looking to uh, satisfy the Sadducean interpretation of, of Torah at the expense of the Pharisees. He's simply making a political statement about his allegiance uh, to the Sadducean faction and his disdain for the Pharisees and their sort of weak-kneed approach to nationalism and his rejection of their added ceremonies, that their burdensome halakha is no longer going to be relevant to him. He doesn't need to do it, he's the boss. Okay, but what the story does tell us, however, is that any attempt by an authority figure to disregard the will of the people on religious matters is going to cause a massive outcry. People, the, the Jewish people are very religious people. And if we see our Avodat HaMikdash uh, being done incorrectly and in a disdainful way, so the masses are going to riot. Problem is, what, what happens when the masses riot? Sometimes they win, and they can you know, chop the head off the ruler if they get lucky. But other times, the ruler uh, is able to exert control with the police force or with the military, and the rioters get destroyed. That's what happens here. So, and according to uh, the sources, thousands of people died in the temple after that episode. Okay. Um, there are other stories about the, the ill will between the, the, the authorities, on, on the, uh, the government in Yanai's day, and the religious Jews. But in order to understand those further stories, we have to uh, go to another act of barbarism that led to the death of many more people and a further alienating of the Pharisees. So, when the open war broke out, the Civil War, um, Alexander needed to fight not only dissident Jews, but also the allies of the dissident Jews. 
who could these uh, anti-Hasmonean Jews turn, turn to for support? Well, the Hasmoneans broke away from an existing world empire. And that world empire never really reconciled itself to Jewish freedom. And what empire is that? Seleucid, Seleucid right? I mean, in 141, when Simon made himself uh, the, the leader of the Jewish people and declared independence, who said that was allowed from a Seleucid point of view? They never did. They never acquiesced to these things. So, when a group of religious Jews, loyal Pharisees, are looking to oust, to overthrow the Hasmoneans, they turn to the Seleucid king, Demetrius III. And there's a battle at Shechem in the year 88. So, civil war has been ongoing for about six to eight years. And finally it comes to a head in the Battle of Shechem, where religious Jews are fighting in the army of Demetrius III and hired mercenaries, Gentile, heathen mercenaries, are fighting in the army of Alexander Yanai. So, uh, uh, a Goyish army full of Jews fighting a Jewish army full of Goyim. A bizarre situation. And who wins? Well, the Gentile army filled with Jews wins. Again, Alexander loses. He has a habit of losing in war. And he has to flee. But, here's where you have the most awkward moment of them all. Some Jews in the victorious Gentile army come to their senses and realize that they would rather live under a tyrannical Jewish leader than uh, be the reason why Jewish independence is lost and the, the heathens take over once again. Like they could never forgive themselves if they sold out their country uh, to the Seleucids, even though they, they readily acknowledge that, that Alexander Yana is a bad man, and we don't want him as our leader. Well, if it's either him or Gentile rule, we regret having fought for the Goyim. So they, they come to their senses after the battle is over, and enough Jews in the army of Demetrius III defect and go over to the other side, that Demetrius has no choice but to withdraw. So now Alexander Yanai is free to come back. And when he comes back, who is he facing? He's facing Jews who five minutes ago were his mortal enemies, but two minutes ago did an act of nationalistic courage that allowed him to return. So what's his approach going to be towards them? Benign or devilish? I would guess devilish. There you go. They're traitors. They're traitors, right. So what does he do? He has 800 of the rebels brutally executed. He has them crucified in front of their wives and children. According to an even more grotesque version of the story, the wives and children were subsequently executed as well. Um, So this is a real bloodbath. And according to the anti-Yanai version of events, what was Yanai doing while this bloodbath was taking place? Having sex. Yes, having a picnic with his concubines uh, watching from a distance. I, so, I, I do that. All right, so that's, that's, the, that's, that's what the, the story goes. Okay. If you were a Pharisee or a pious Jew who is not part of the winning team at this point, we're now in the mid-80s, 87, 86 BCE, um, you're afraid that Yanai is like you know, Joseph Stalin and you're going to be dead unless you run away because he, he's gone mad, he's killing his own people, and there's no hope. 
So where do people go? Where can they run to? Well, 8,000 Pharisees flee the country. Some of them go to Syria, where they're massacred by anti-Semites at Chalcis. Um, others go to Egypt, including Yehuda ben Tabai. Shimon ben Shatach flees to the Arab regions. So you have uh, a, a, a significant exodus, basically a mass exodus of, of pietists to other places. This is recorded in the Talmud in several passages, including really famous ones that we've discussed in years past, but I want to go through a few of them now. Um, this is a Gemara in Brachos. Uh, kids in you know, ninth grade learn the, the seventh parak of Brachos. Kids in Mizamdin, so they know this, this piece. Yanai Malka Umalkata, Yanai the king and queen, Karichu Rifta Bahabihadade, they were eating bread together, so of course, this is Gemara Brachos, it's about benching. And because Yanai had executed the rabbis, and this is an example where the word Rabbanon is used as a popular term in rabbinic literature, but is really a, um, anachronistic because in Pharisaic times there were no Rabbanon. But it's a, it's a legitimate term to use when describing the proto-rabbis, the Pharisees. So because he killed all the rabbis, he didn't have anyone to bench for him, to say the grace after meals on the premise that someone had to do it for him, and he never did it himself. Bear in mind that in antiquity, we didn't have the Muslim like we have today, where the guy says, Rabbi Sain of Arech, and then everybody says the whole benching to themselves. In the, in the old days, the Muslim was the only thing that the average person said, and then the leader, out loud, recited all four blessings of the Birkat HaMazon, and the, and the audience just said, Amen. Okay, so he, he didn't have anyone to bench for him. Amar Lala Devitu, he says to his wife, "Man lan gavra de If there, if would it only be that someone would come forward and bless for me? Amrale, the wife says to him, "Ishtabeli imaitinalach gavra." Swear to me that if I bring such a person forward uh, for, for your services, that you're not going to hurt that person. Ishtabela, so he swore. Fine. Aitite la Shimon ben She brought forth Shimon ben Shatach, her brother. So. Rabbinic literature is the only place where we have any record of Shimon ben Shatach, the, one of the leading Pharisees and part of the Zugot, the paired leadership, was a relative of the queen. Is this historically accurate? I doubt it. I don't think that, that Shimon ben Shatach was the, the brother of the queen. Uh, he was a, a scholar, and maybe that he had cordial relations with her and that she saved his life. That we can believe, readily believe. But I don't think they were biologically related. That's what it says here. So, Osve ben Dide ben Dida. So, he was seated, the, the, this sage, Shimon ben Shatach, was seated between the king and queen. Amar chazit kama yikara avdinalach. So, the king says to the, to the rabbi, look how much honor I give to you. Like when the, the, the rich donor to the yeshiva says to the, to the, to the rabbi, look how, 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 how much covet I give to you, you know. Amar uh, lav ad kamokritli, el oraitu demokritli. So the rabbi says, it's not you that are, it's giving me honor. It's the fact that I have Torah in my brain, in my possession. That's what causes me to get honor. Okay. marut. The king says to the queen, I see that he doesn't accept authority, meaning he's chutzpahdik towards the king. So, uh, he may be your brother, and you wanted me to save him and not kill him, but he's, mis- he's misbehaving, he's acting inappropriately on the dais here. Uh, he's out of line. They gave him a cup to make the blessing. A cup of wine, that means. He said, how shall I make a blessing? 
Baruch She'acha Yanai V'chaveirav Mishalo. Blessed is the one whom Yanai and his friends ate from his food. What is the normal verbiage? Baruch She'achalnu Mishalo. That we ate from God's stuff. Because the person leading the Mizumun, among everyone else, also ate. And so he could say that we collectively ate, him including himself. But Shimon ben Shatach, who was just brought to the dais, having eaten nothing, he, what am I going to say? That blessed is the God that you guys ate from? I need to consume something in order to be able to bless. So Shati Lahukasa, he drank that cup of wine. Then they brought him another cup of wine that he could lead the grace after meals. So by having had a cup of wine, he participated in the, the repast, and thus he can make the bracha. Now, if you know, if you know your, your Gemara, you'll know that what I didn't include here, the next line of the Gemara is, well, how could he do Birkat Mazon if he didn't have bread? If he only had a cup of wine, that doesn't count. You have to have Kizayit Dagan, an olive's bulk of some grain-based product. And so the Gemara says, yeah, Shem ben Shatach was just doing his own opinion, but the halacha is not in accordance with that. Uh, that's just a side point for, for, for Gemara learning. For historical purposes, what do, we take, what do we make of this story? What we make of it is that Shem ben Shatach did run away. He was in hiding. Did he have a friend in the government? Yes, the queen. Were they related? Who knows? But he had a friend. And why was he... Um, concerned about his safety because Yanai was erratic. And even if you might never have done anything to offend him, you could be on a, on a hit list. Truth be told, however, that there are other stories in the Gemara that explain why uh, Yanai had a particular axe to grind against Shimon ben Shatach. So this is a, a it's in Bereshis Rabbah, but it's also in Gemara Nazir. Um, okay, so Gemara says, Shloshmaot Nazirin Salkin Bain Lamikravi Tishameot Korbanin, Biyomadishim Ben Shatach. There were 300 Nazarites, not Nazarenes, but Nazarites, who um, wanted to offer their sacrifices upon the conclusion of their period of Nizirut in the days of Shim Ben Shatach. How many offerings? are brought by a Nazir concluding his period of service. Three. So there are three offerings. Olachatas and Shlamim. And 300 times three is 900 animals. That's a lot of animals. Your average Nazir was of what socioeconomic standing? Poor. Because rich people like to live it up. Poor people who have nothing to lose and nothing to gain swear off all sorts of uh, earthly pleasures because they weren't going to have them anyway. Uh, so people go into the wilderness. They go to the Darom. The Darom was the place where if you were an ascetic and you basically were a weirdo and, and you had like these religious motivations, you would go to the Darom and you'd spend some time there and you'd come back from the Darom with long hair and a, and a grizzly beard and probably smelling not all that good and, and have to bring sacrifices but couldn't afford them. So what do you do? You can't afford the sacrifices, but you want to escape the Nizirut, and you have to abide by the Nizirut restrictions until you offer your sacrifices. So, Shimon ben Shatach cuts a deal with Yanai. For 150 of these guys, you, Yanai, will pay for the sacrifices. That's 450 animals. Now, as a king... 450 animals is no big deal. I mean, it's like a drop in the bucket. But it's, I mean, it's not nothing, but he could afford it. And I, Shem ben Shatach, will cover the other 450. And what did he do? How does, 400, how, how does a, 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 a rabbi, on a rabbi's salary, afford 450 animals? 
Two words. Graft yeah, and... No. <laughs> no. Nedarim. What does he do? He annuls the Nazirut vow of the 150 other people who were supposed to bring these 450 animals so that, in fact, they bring zero animals. So, so Shum ben Shatach pays nothing out of pocket, and Yanai pays a lot of money out of pocket. And Yanai is very upset about that. He feels he's been bamboozled and cheated. So Shum ben Shatach has to run away. Later, when they, when they reconcile, he explains to him that Hatarat uh, Nedarim is a legitimate form of... Uh, uh, of jurisprudence, and he didn't do anything wrong. By the way, this also fits in with the sectarian conflict, because where is Hatarat Nadarim found in the Torah? Nowhere. Nowhere, exactly. It's a Pharisaic invention. It's Porchot Ba'avir. It floats in the air. Ve'en la'amalismoch, and has no basis of support, scripturally speaking. The, the, the Mishnah will occasionally acknowledge the, the lack of scriptural basis for certain key elements in the halakha. So certain parts of Torah are mikra merubav halachot muatot. A lot of scripture and not a lot of law. Other parts of Torah are halachot merubot mikra muat. A lot of law and not a lot of Torah. Meaning three lines of chumash, but 100,000 details in the Shulchan Aruch. So it could flip-flop. And there are certain things that are hararin ha-tluyim basa'ara. What does that mean? Hararim tluyim basa'ara. Mountains suspended by a hair. Hilchos Shabbos are regarded as mountains suspended by a hair because there's not a lot of chumash. Okay? You know, it says, uh, what, else, what does it say? It has about three things in the Torah you can't do on Shabbos. But there are a thousand malachas you can't do. 39 primary categories and a whole host of other subsidiary categories of toladot. So it's, it's suspended by a hair. But what about hatarat nedarim? No basis whatsoever. Now, there, there, are, there are some tanoim who disagree with that approach and say there, there is a basis in Scripture and they find some you know, nuanced hints. But basically it's not there. And the Sadducees denied its legitimacy. So here you have a Sadducean allied Hasmonean king paying out of pocket for sacrifices while this, uh, uh, this Pharisee is pulling shenanigans to exempt other people from sacrifices. So there's a, both a political angle a pers- and a personal angle, but then also this factional angle. Okay. Um, Question? Yeah. There was already commerce with the Romans. Yes. And they just seem to be out of it now until... Uh, Tell me and Caesar. Okay, so I'm glad you brought up Rome, because the truth of the matter is that what was going on in Rome in uh, Yanai's uh, generation did affect his ability to engage in wars of conquest. Civil war? So the civil war, correct? The the first civil war, Sulla's first civil war in 88, 87, uh, which pitted him against uh, um, uh, Gaius Marius, uh, who were two opposing statesmen and generals um, in the Roman Senate. What happened was this. The Hasmoneans had, uh, dating back to the times of Judah Maccabee, had alliances with Rome. In 161, in 139, in 128, there were, it was re- reaffirmed several times. And that alliance was, in theory, uh, a two-way street, but in reality, it was not. I mean, there was no expectation that the, 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 the little Judeans were ever going to do anything of, of, of substance to help the Roman cause. Rome was dominating the world and was gobbling up portions of the Seleucid Empire till it eventually swallowed it whole. 
Um, really, it was just the hope that a friendship with Rome would scare off the enemies of the Jews from attacking Judea. And to a certain extent, I think it helped. It probably did uh, serve a useful purpose. But the Hasmoneans were reluctant to go on offensive wars against neighboring city-states and regimes that might also have had good uh, relationships with Rome, lest you offend Rome. All right? uh, the Jews were not the only ones who, who tried to secure these alliances. Other guys did too. You can't fight with Rome's ally, even if you're an ally of Rome. But if Rome is in turmoil in civil war, which they were in the early 80s, then it's, if everyone is fair game. Because Roman foreign policy is effectively non-existent, they're just struggling, uh, you know, between uh, would-be uh, consuls. Okay. Um, now, that said, people ran away. How do you know when the coast is clear and you can come back? Someone's got to tell you. Someone's got to send you a message. So, we're told that Yehoshua ben Parachia ran away. This Gemara in Sota. Yoshubim Parachia have a kakatul Yanai Malka the Rabban when 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 Alexander Yanai killed the rabbis. So Shimon ben Shatach Atmei Achute. Shimon ben Shatach was was hidden away, was squirreled away by his sister who was the queen. So he didn't have to flee the country to a faraway place. He just found a safe house. But Yoshubim Parachia Azal Arak Alexandria Shemitzrayim. He went to Alexandria of Egypt, Talmud the regime. Ki Shlomo when there was peace. I guess that might mean when Alexander Yanai was dead, but more likely it means when the civil war was over and things calmed down and Yanai stopped killing people. So Shalach Le Shimon ben Shatach, uh, Shimon ben Shatach sent a message from Jerusalem, Ir HaKodesh, the holy city, to Alexandria. Achoti Baali Sharui Bitochech, Viani Yoshevet Shomema. Which is a nice code language for. We're desolate without you, meaning you are the leading rabbi, you're the leading Torah sage of the times. We, we, we need you here in Jerusalem. You can't stay forever a thousand miles away in western Egypt, in Alexandria, just because it's safe there. You've got to come back. That your, your personal uh, safety and security is assured at this point. Come back to Israel. Don't stay there forever. There is a real danger, of course, in staying long term in the land of the heathens. And for that, we turn to Pirkei Avos in the first chapter. And I'm going to quote you a Mishnah that's cited in the name of Avtalion, who was a later one of the pairs, but this really applied in the generation of Hyrcanus, as it would in the generation of, uh, of Herod. So, Avtalion Omer, Chachamim, sages, Hizaharu b'divreichem, be careful about what you say, galut, lest you be uh, liable to exile, and you'll go to a place of bad waters, and the, the disciples who come after you will drink these waters, and they will die. And the name of heaven will be profaned. So what does that really mean? It means like this. When the authority figures in Judea are erratic and are killing people for saying something politically incorrect, or uh, not politically incorrect so much as um, not in, in line with official government policy, so you have to run away lest you get killed. But when you run away and you leave the core of the, uh, of the Jewish state 
and go to the peripheral lands where Judaism is not as strong, what happens when you try to have a yeshiva in Chutz away from the center of Yiddishkeit? What happens? The boys become maskilim, and they're reading Bialik, you know, secretly tucked underneath the Gemara. All right? And what's going to happen? They're going to become apostates and heretics, and the name of heaven will be profaned. That those who should have been the, the, the most pious of Jews, the students of the sages, end up becoming uh, the worst enemies, theologically, of traditional Judaism. So, that has happened more than once in our history. But the, the most intriguing part of it is that this same story, as it appears in another version um, in Gemara and Sanhedrin, adds that Yoshub and Parachia had a disciple who was with him on the trip to Egypt. And who was that disciple? You have one guess? No, he had one disciple who, who caused trouble and went astray. And who's that? The ultimate one to go astray? No, Jesus! Okay, so. I was going to say Alright, so let's go to Gemara Sanhedrin. Yoshim Parachia Maihi. What was the episode of Yoshim Parachia? Well, when Yanai killed the rabbis, Azal Yoshim Parachia Veyeshu La Alexandria Shamitzrayim. And then Shimon Shatach sent a message and said, The coast is clear, you can come back. And they came back. And what's the story about on their way back? They stopped off at the inn, and the. Um, the uh, Rebbe, Yeshua Parachia, thanked the innkeeper for her kind hospitality, and Yeshu, the disciple, said, yeah, but she's not attractive. No, 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 no. <laughs> he said her eyes were messed up. And so Yeshua Parachia chastised his disciple for having sexual thoughts about the innkeeper, Forget that whether she was attractive or unattractive. The point is, he was making a lewd comment, and uh, he. No, this is the guy. So, so he put him in cherem, and kicked him out of the yeshiva. I he came back okay, so, so, so then Yeshu comes back and asks for mechila, and Yoshuvim Parachia gives, uh, who's in the middle of davening or something like that, gives a hand gesture, which was supposed to mean. All right, you're, you're welcome back into the fold. It was a welcoming gesture, but Yeshu interpreted it to be an exclusionary gesture, like, I don't, like get out of here. And so he went off uh, the derech completely and established a new religion. Now, what's the, what's the problem with this story? Well, there's, there's no problem with this story at all. There could have been a Yeshu who was a disciple of Yeshua in Parachia, who had a falling out with his teacher, and went off and became a heretic. But... What year? Okay, so, so it is assumed that Yoshim Parachia, who was a second-generation Zug, is a contemporary of John Hyrcanus and maybe the early years of Ale- uh, Alexander Yanai. And that his, uh, if this is the, the story of his departure to Egypt, it would have happened sometime in the 90s or 80s BCE. And Jesus was supposed to have been born 4 BCE. Right. So if you're, if you're trying to relate this to Jesus of Nazareth and, the, and the, the establishment of the Christian religion, you're off by 100 years or more. But Yeshu is a common name, and it could be that this is a legitimate story that tells about a different person. However, most scholars tend to think it's about... Why would you tell the story? I, uh, well, I don't it's know. A There's, it's a good story. It's a, it's a legitimately good... Yeah, 
so most scholars so most scholars think that the intention was to relate to Jesus of Nazareth and the founding of Christianity except that the rabbis didn't know their chronology which we know that they didn't know their chronology because the Seder Olam is way off and so they tell a story that simply was anachronistic and, and didn't happen that way I'm not here to decide one way or the other but I can tell you that both are plausible okay now, that said um, later in his career Yanai uh, goes to war again in the uh, southern part of the country and Transjordan and tries to defeat little enemies. He doesn't try to bite off more than he can chew. So between 83 and 80, he conquers the, the, the lesser city-states of the region because he's just looking to expand the borders in whatever way he, uh, is possible without... Uh, exposing himself to great danger, and as an older man at this point, he doesn't really have the stomach to fight tough, tough wars. Uh, and he's successful in this regard, um, and the state does expand in size. Interestingly, Yanai puts stars on his coins. He doesn't put um, human f- uh, faces or the, uh, the, the image of a person. Why not? Because at that time, it would have been regarded as idolatrous, as a graven image. Um, in violation of the Ten Commandments. Other monarchs did. The heathen monarchs always put their faces on coins. But Yanai, despite his uh, irreligiosity and, and, and cruelty and bloodthirstiness, he didn't want to uh, offend the, uh, the real serious theological sensibilities of the Jews. So he puts a star. What's the symbolism of the star? Darach kochav miyaakov. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. My bar mitzvah parsha, parsha Balak. Okay? Who is famous for citing that pasuk? Rabbi Akiva. In reference to whom? Bar Kochba. A star shoots forth from Jacob. Okay? So, Darach Kochav Miyakov, Darach Kuchba, or Darach Kuzba Miyakov, Bar Kochba. That's because he was seen as a messianic figure. Yanai sees himself as a messianic figure. In what respect? That, bear in mind, in Second Temple times, there was no notion of um, a third temple, of a long exile, a protracted exile, and Beit HaMikdash Hashlishi at some end of day's time. No. The Messiah is the one who is Machazir Atara Liyoshna, restores the former glory of old. Which means what? We have a temple, good, it functions. We have a high priesthood, good. And he's also the king these days, even better. And what, what do you need? The conquest of Eretz Yisrael and the, the, dom, the, the dominance of, of Israel on the world stage. So basically, um, the Messiah is going to accomplish political goals almost exclusively because the religious matters are taking care of themselves. Today, after 2,000 years of Galut, we think along religious lines of rebuilding Beit HaMikdash and the Korbanot and Avodah, those sorts of things, but when, it's already, when it already exists, that's taken for granted. All that remains is politics, conquest, and he thinks he's the man. Okay, so he thinks very highly of himself. Now, um, his one aim in life of uh, pursuing a broader um, uh, geographic uh, control for the Jews brought him into conflict with the Pharisees and the people in general. This opposition was not based, as I said, primarily on religious grounds or even on personal grounds, unless, you know, he killed your mother or father. Um, But for the most part, people didn't have a personal problem with Yanai. 
the problem was a political one, that Yanai occasionally lost, number one, nobody likes a loser, and also he demanded too much. He demanded you know, conscription of soldiers t- too frequently, and because he couldn't pull that off, he had to hire mercenaries, who obviously didn't fight all that well for him. Um, and the Pharisees don't want to be in a constant state of, of battle uh, going out to the front. So who won this war between the Pharisees and Yanai? You could argue that in this mutual antagonism, Yanai was the ultimate victor because despite whatever setbacks he had, he did expand the borders of Israel and he lived, although he, only, he died at the age of 51, he had a good 30-year reign, a 27-year reign. That's a lot longer than his, than his brother did or his son would. Okay? He not only maintained control over the conquest that had been secured by his father and grandfather and great-uncles, but he also made additional conquests on both sides of the Jordan. But, however, his victories were of temporary character because since he never was able to secure the allegiance of the people to the Hasmonean dynasty on account of his cruel persecution of the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees really hated the regime more and more every day and were less likely to remain loyal to his uh, successor whether it be his wife or his kids. And so the people, the common folk, look to the Pharisaic sages as religious guides and to a certain extent even political guides and they turn eventually towards pacifism. Uh, This is certainly true by by the age of the rabbis, by the age of the destruction of the temple. But already now we see a a trend towards pacifism. Um, And this trend led eventually to the demise of the Jewish state because you don't have enough people willing to fight to fend off the the Romans who are rolling in and are eager eager to grab whatever they can. And ultimately Rome will win without firing a shot without even uh, killing anyone, they're going to waltz on in in 63 and take away Hasmonean independence. Partly because Yanai was, was just too much, it was too bloody, and the people couldn't, couldn't deal with it anymore. Now, on Yanai's deathbed, he gave instructions. So let's see what it says in the Gemara. Yanai says to his wife, Salome Alexandra, who will succeed him uh, and will be in charge from 76 to her death in 67. Interestingly, she was 13 years older than him. Really? That's an unusual marriage. It's like a May-December relationship there. Uh, I mean, he was 23 when they got married, and she was 36. And she was childless up until that point, and then had two kids with him. So, all right, good for her. Later in life, she was able to have kids. But she was a, a savvy operator. What, what advice did he give to her? He said, Don't fear the Pharisees who had been his foes for, for a while at this point, and not from the, from the non-Pharisees, rather fear the people who wear colored clothing, who are similar to the Pharisees, meaning the, the mock Pharisees, the people who wear the garment, they, 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 uh, they have the externals, but are not sincere in their convictions. It's a famous Talmudic line. They... Uh, they do like Zimri uh, ben Salu, 
who was the Nesibet Abel Shimoni, the Shimonite tribal leader, who had relations with, with Cosby Batsur at the, the entrance to, to, to the Mishkan, and was, uh, was shishkabad by Pinchas. Okay? So they, he, they, he died for his sin. But it was a horrific sin. So these Tzavuyim, these people who were phonies, they behave like Zimri, but they want the reward of Pinchas. So be wary of people who are uh, deceitful, who are two-faced, who you really can't trust. Now, what does that say? It means that Yanai didn't really care about the sectarian conflict. He wasn't interested in the religious uh, battles over Nusuch HaMayim and Hataras Nedarim and the, the Halakha Lamosh Misinai. That's not his interest. He's concerned about nationalism and politics and war and peace. Let the, 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 the religious factions duke it out. But don't hate either one of them. In fact, the people like the Pharisees, so you, queen, who's going to take over in five seconds after I die, he says, go with the people. The people like the Pharisees, go with the Pharisees, even though I was opposed to them. Change the political alignment. Just be wary of people who you can't trust, whose uh, position in this conflict is unknown or uncertain. Those people could stab you in the back. But if you know where someone stands politically and religiously, Gesundheit, you know, be, be with them and all, all is well. So, what ended up happening, the Pharisees entered the Sanhedrin, having been previously excluded, and over a nine-year stretch, come to dominate the Sanhedrin, so that, for a time at least, it's possible that even the temple service was officiated in line with Pharisaic interpretation. One of the things we find all throughout the Mishnah is the rabbis, or the they, the anonymous they, bossing around the Kohen Gadol, telling him what to do. Which, which tractate do we find it in most? Yoma. Why Yoma? Because who does the service? The Kohen Gadol. Who's watching him do it? Nobody. He goes alone. But what does the mission in the first part say? That the they, the Omrim, the, the authorities, whoever they are, tell him, you better do it like this, this, and this. And we'll, take, we'll force you to take an oath. You do it our way, the Pharisaic way. So I've, in, in these lectures, I've mentioned that that may be completely ahistorical. That may be the rabbis of the Mishnah rewriting the past, making themselves more important than they really were. That in temple times, it could be the Sadducees completely dominated and did whatever they wanted. And in hindsight, because the rabbis come to dominate Judaism, they say, yeah, back in the old days, we used to boss the coin around. But it never really happened. However, it did happen at least temporarily, in this brief window when the Prushim gained control. So it might not have always been true, but it probably was true for a brief period of time that these anonymous Omrim Lo, they say to him, really did happen. That you have these non-Kohanic uh, religious authorities dictating what should happen in the Holy Temple. All right, we'll see you next week.